Hello, everybody, and welcome to Investing with IBD podcast, sponsored by Direction. It's Wednesday, June 8th, 2022, and I'm Justin Nielsen, your host, and joining me, as always, every week, whether we like it or not, <laughs> Arusha Pires, uh, O'Neill Global Advisors Portfolio Manager. How you doing, Arusha? Hey, always good, Justin. Thanks for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> Well, I, I think you were saying mean things about me pre-show, so I just had to like get you back. Um, but also, hey, we're welcoming back to the show. This is someone that I just got introduced to. Arusha had him on the show prior. Uh, Simon Erickson is joining us again, and he is from Seven Investing. He's the founder and CEO of Seven Investing. So it's great to have you back on the show, Simon. Justin, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Absolutely. So uh, great to have you and a couple of the things that we're going to be talking about with Simon today. Of course, we're going to get into the markets a little bit. Um, uh, some long term investing principles and especially interesting is going to be, hey, with this whole rate hike environment, where are the opportunities going to be? So we're going to get some analysis from Simon on that and a little bit of a deep dive into the semiconductor industry. Well, as deep as we can do for a short show like this. But uh, let's go ahead and hop right into it. Uh, do you want to start with the NASDAQ or where would you like to start in terms of market analysis here, Simon? Yeah, a lot going on right now, Justin. There is a lot going on in the stock market to take into account. Uh, we were going to talk about inflation, rate heights and what all this is going to mean. But our perspective from seven investing is long term investing. Okay. Right. We're not looking at things in weeks or, or, or months or anything like it's, it's, you know, what are the greatest companies out there? Let those compound your wealth over several periods. Mm -hmm. And so what we're kind of looking at right now, a lot of what's going on with the market that we see is, is the guidance and the numbers versus the expectations that are out there. Uh, if you see a lot of the companies that are selling off right now, it's because they missed guidance or they have mm -hmm. a forecast that was not taken very well by Wall Street. And I think that the kind of the moral of the story, if we can package it all into a, a quick takeaway, is don't have guidance that you can't hit right now. If you're <laughs> going to put it out there. You do not want to be the one that goes out and gets too aggressive when the market uh -huh. is punishing everybody for a, for, a, for a forecast. So a lot of companies are taking the hit in the short term. They're issuing conservative guidance, but it's probably a pretty good plan when you don't know what's going to happen in the rest of 2022. And, and how much of that is kind of... Uh because of some tough comparisons. I mean, we had this whole pandemic that we were coming out of, and especially uh, we saw that you know pretty dramatic shift in a lot of what was being favored uh, in the market from you know those that were very pandemic-centric, um, where, hey, earnings don't really matter as long as you've got some powerful revenues and PEs. I mean, those don't matter either. Uh, and now it's, it's a very different market environment. So uh, how much of that guidance and estimates and everything like that are you thinking is is tough comparisons that shift um how much of it is maybe something that is going to be a little bit more persistent sure thing justin so when the tide goes out you see he's been swimming naked right you know we had covid we had the surge in demand of everybody's staying at home tech companies benefited from this greatly money was free you could borrow as much money as cheaply as you wanted and put your foot on the accelerator for years and now Things have reversed, right? The economy is getting a little bit stronger. People are going back out and doing things, but money's becoming more expensive. And so as a fundamental based investor like myself and my team are, we look at things like this. Like, what does a balance sheet look like? You know, what kind of growth are you seeing from these companies? Are you taming down the growth versus what you're seeing in 2020 or 2021? A lot of it, like you said, is against a tough comp year. I mean, 2021 was a lot better than 2020 for most businesses. And 2022 is going to be more challenging than last year was. But I still think that there's some secular growth trends that are just now getting started, especially in the tech world. That's where we're focusing a lot of our attention right now. Yeah. And so you do bring up a good point, Simon, with the secular growth trends here. Now, so when you have that shift from 2021 to 2022, where all of a sudden valuation matters, are you shifting your stock selections or are you still sticking with that longer term view where some a number of those ideas that did really well in 2020 and we're all looking at we, we all look kind of at the stocks the same way, where we're looking for those game-changing growth stocks. Uh, but the problem with game-changing growth stocks, when you're in a 2022 type environment, they can come down really fast. Are you shifting because some of those growth stocks don't have the greatest balance sheets or income statements? There's two ways to look at it, Arusha. You know, the first is kind of Bill Gurley. You know, if you go back a decade, he described the 10X Club. He mm -hmm. thought it was amazing that now you've got some companies that are being valued at 10 times sales. You know, that was really preposterous at the time. The company's right. going to have that kind of valuation. But then if you look at last year, 
we were seeing companies like Zoom video communications at 45 times sales. Right. You know, right. we're even higher than that for tech companies. I think the market's kind of swallowing the pill now and realizing, hey, maybe, you know, we got a little bit too aggressive on, on how we were valuing some of these companies. On the other hand, uh, if you zoom out a little bit and, and you don't look so much in the year to year or anything that's uh, shorter term, Boston Consulting Group put out some fantastic research that says that if you're looking over 10 year periods, the stock market's best performers over a decade, somewhere between 50 and 70 percent of the stock's returns of the best performers of the S&P 500 are tied directly to profitable revenue growth. And it sounds obvious. You want to grow the top line no matter what your business is. But can you, can you maintain that for 10 years? You've got to have a lot going right for you. You've got to make a lot of decisions right if you're going to be a company that can grow for a 10-year period of time and be one of the market's best performers. And we've certainly seen that, right? We, we Until recently, Netflix was certainly one of those companies. NVIDIA has definitely been one of those companies. There are huge trends behind them, coupled with some really smart moves from the CEO. That's how you find a company that's going to be a multi-bagger in your portfolio. So maybe we could get into this a little bit because again a lot of these companies that you're mentioning um i mean netflix off more than 70 percent off its high nvidia more than 50 percent off its high and so when you when you're taking this long-term perspective and i don't think anyone thinks these companies are going away but when you get such a hit to the the stock price how as a long-term investor do you approach that is it like okay i, I believe in the company i'm going to weather the storm or hey it's out of favor right now but I'm keeping it on my radar, maybe, you know, going a little bit lighter on it, ready to keep my powder dry for the next time it gives me an opportunity. Yeah. And, and Justin, I, I consider myself a, a, a long-term investor, right? I, I am a, a fan of, of, of buying and holding, but I'm not a fan of buying and holding forever and praying that things just work out, right? <laughs> right. It, things, things change out there. Markets change. Innovation happens. You know, the largest companies in the, in the 80s are not the largest companies in the stock market today. Right. You know, if you look at IBM and GE and Exxon, you know, there's kind of a rotation of where the where the money is going. And I think it's safe to say that the largest companies in the stock market today are not going to be the largest ones in 20 years either. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of big trends that are happening right now. I think AI is certainly one of them right now. We're just starting to understand uh, companies are embracing machine learning in their own operations. Uh, DevOps is kind of a new a new a new buzzword of kind of how software is being developed. Uh, the digital transformation or you know, the modernization of software and the IT stack within companies, all of these things are going to have huge implications, especially when you consider that only less than 10% of the enterprise workloads are actually being used uh, in the cloud and, and certainly for AI today. And then you've got either, even new things, quantum computing. You know, there's mm -hmm. estimates that quantum computing is going to have budgets at 20% of the S&P 500 companies within a couple of years. So things like that, you've got to have them on your radar. Things change. I don't think that... Um, it's, it's uh, Netflix's um, shortcomings or mistakes that competition arose in their industry. I, think, I still think it was a fantastic company to own for a long period of time, but we certainly have to keep our eyes open. I don't think any company is, is, uh, is a 50-year holding unless you get really, really <laughs> lucky and uh, you do quite well with yourself. Yeah, like for, so for a Netflix, now it, it really does matter whether you bought it in a 2003 or 2010 versus a 2020 you might have to adjust those strategies. If you, if you bought it in 2003, 2010, when some of those, we can go 2010, when the streaming came out and, mm -hmm. and that was kind of, they essentially reinvented themselves. Yeah, you, even getting hit at this point, you, you, you still have such a big cushion that you can take a chance if you think that uh, the, the longer term pers uh, pro prospects of the company are going to still be good. They're just kind of going through what they went through in 2011 with the whole Quickster thing. Um, but what about, say you bought it like in a 2018, 2017, where now you're actually maybe down dramatically on the position. Does that kind of adjust anything? Or are you going in with a small enough position that if you if that went to zero or down 70, 80 percent, you could withstand it? Uh, my, my answer to that, Arusha, is look at the competitive advantage and, and how that is either increasing or decreasing over yeah. time. If you go back to the early 2000s, Netflix was the only game in town for digital streaming. Right. Uh, you mentioned the Quickster thing, right? But, you know, Reed Hastings got a lot of flack for, for doing this in the first place and doing streaming. That's Everyone true. was saying, you know, no, no, Reed, you know, your margins, your profit margins are in delivering DVDs across the country to people in the mail. He said, no, 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 we're going to do this. We're going to get ahead of it. That was a very, very strong competitive position. 
versus today, you've got Disney Plus now with 100 million subscribers out there. You know, people are going to self-select what content they want to watch. Now that everything's a la carte, everything's streaming, we've got an entire new ecosystem of connected TV advertising we could talk about. But Netflix's competitive advantages are certainly weaker today than they were a decade ago. And so that's what we kind of look at when we think about position sizing or, you know, when do you initiate a position? I'm not one to recommend um, buying into companies on the dip if you think that their company as a whole is, is weakening. On the other hand, I love it when I see a company with fantastic fundamentals, accelerating revenue growth, margins that are increasing, if not at steady state yet, but those have sold off amidst the market volatility that we've seen recently. That to me is a, is a golden opportunity I'd like to take advantage of. Like so, you know, there's a there, there's kind of a saying that we use uh, often is that often the fundamentals look great at the top. So I guess um, when, when you're kind of, because you're doing all of this fundamental analysis here, Simon, uh, when you're looking at these companies and you're looking at these fundamental uh, aspects, you know, the competitive advantage, the, the margins, everything like that, are there any early indicators that, hey, the, the things are slowing down or something's different? Um, and I, again, I, I think of like a Microsoft, you know, Microsoft took like 15 years to come back after it, uh, after it peaked in 2000. But when it came back, it, it had completely reinvented itself. It wasn't, it wasn't Windows. It wasn't the operating system. It wasn't Office. It was cloud. You know, that was, that was what Microsoft was all about. So uh, is, is there any early warning signs that you get there in terms of that fundamental side uh, that, that lets you know, hey, this might be time to part ways? If, if you don't mind, Justin, I'd like to take the, the, the optimistic spin on it first, and then we'll go okay. to the it's time to part ways, you know. <laughs> okay. you know. Yeah, what a downer, Justin. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, the optimistic side of it, the, the uh, glass and half full approach on this is, is a lot of times companies like Microsoft are revalued by the stock market itself. Yeah. Uh, Microsoft reinvented itself as a cloud first company. It was one that was kind of always legacy. Yeah, it had Excel. Yeah, it had the enterprise relationships. But then when it started, you know, you see, start to see Azure or, or Azure, depending what part of the country you're from, their cloud-based, you know, uh, uh, IT, you know, uh, infrastructure as a service offerings growing 40, 50% a year. And now they're hooking their enterprise customers into it and offering the applications. Market says, okay, Microsoft's margins are going to increase because of this new direction that they're taking the company. We're going to value this more of a tech company rather than a legacy enterprise provider. Um, same thing happened with Activision Blizzard. If you remember, Acti you know, mm -hmm. which ironically, we're talking about Microsoft, you know, we're <laughs> Activision, but like Activision for years was kind of a console video game provider, right? Mm -hmm. And then it went digital that allowed digital downloads to cut out all the middlemen and you know, all the best buys of the world that were selling their, their software. And they said, wow, all of a sudden you see margins based, boosting a thousand basis points. There's not only fundamentals, uh, the margins increasing, the revenues increasing, things like this, but also the valuation of what investors are willing to pay for that is increasing too. And so back to Bill Gurley, you know, the, the 10X club, Bill Gurley, a famous venture capitalist uh, who looks at, you know, what's the market doing? What's the, how's the market changing out there? How are companies adapting to the opportunity? I, I think that this is why um, when you're talking about the Microsofts and the companies that are, that are cloud native now, they're, they're being valued completely differently than a lot of tech companies were certainly at the, the turn of, uh, of the year 2000. Let me answer the glass half empty side of that as well. <laughs> yeah, please get to that because I, you know, the Debbie Downer in me wants to see that. Uh, the, the Debbie Downer is this Peloton story, right? Of like, you know, Peloton yeah. took full advantage of saying, oh my gosh, everyone's going to have our bike and their treadmill and everything else in your living room. Gyms are dead. You're going to buy all of your equipment. Uh, the prices were, were still very, very high for most consumers out there. And it looked fantastic at the time, but totally unsustainable and whiffed. Mm -hmm. In, in assessing what the true market was for, for its products. And so it had to come back and say, you know, kind of with its tail between its legs, saying we're gonna cut the price of the bike, you know, we're gonna to have to cut our operating costs. We've gotta have McKinsey kind of come in now and tell us what to do uh, to get our expenses more in line. I mean, when you see things like that, you kind of have to scratch your head and say, is this a long-term secular developing trend right. or is this we're taking advantage of COVID and boosting our numbers for a couple of quarters? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, um maybe we take a quick step back and just take a look at the market itself. So uh, let, let's look at the NASDAQ, for instance. And, you know, with, with your long-term perspective, um, and certainly for some of our listeners, uh, this is this is their first correction. So it's like, oh, welcome to welcome to the way the market actually works. It just doesn't go straight up. So when you when you see a correction happen, um, is there any alteration you make in your, I guess, aggressiveness in your portfolio or 
uh, what have you, when you have a situation like this. And let's be honest, some, some of the some of the weakness was masked by the indexes because you had the Google, uh, Microsoft, all of those doing very well, and the Shopify's and everything like that, you know, not doing well since February of 2021. So, it, it, does the market come into play at all here for you uh, with your overall thesis? Uh, yes, it does, Justin. And, and actually, this is where I like to consult uh, the all-knowing Arusha Paris, uh, who has really, <laughs> really opened my eyes to you know the things that he sees of, of um, predicting the future and kind of the technicals of what's going on. There, there's certainly a part to that, Arusha. You know, we chatted with you on our podcast not too right. long ago. Well, it, well I, Simon, I would say it's definitely not predicting the future. It's just more looking at the health of its stocks and stuff like that. Right. Much like a doctor would look at the health of uh, a patient, right? Looking at their 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 blood and uh, yeah. their I can't tell you when you're going to die, but I can tell you if you're sick <laughs> or if you're heading the wrong direction, right? Right or not, right? It's uh, you know, part part of it is I, I think that you know the fund flows, and you look at kind of there's this this mass exodus out of of large growth stocks. There's something I, I have a rough number in front of me. I think it's 91 billion dollars of inflows over the last 12 months into large value. Roughly $200 billion, institutional money mostly, into large blend and an outflow of around $100 billion at a large growth. I mean, that's hard to, to swim against the current when you've got kind of a bunch of people saying, hey, uh, if you're managing somebody's money, a high net worth individual, and they say, don't screw this up. You know, I'm not going to go risky right now. Take, take it out and uh, you accept lower returns for that. But I, but I think on the other hand, uh, that's not going to last forever. Uh, eventually the greed is going to kick back in. And if someone's right. managing your money and you're getting four or 5% and down the street, there's another manager that's getting eight to 10%. You're going to start saying, Hey, I'm ready to start running with the herd again. And so there's, there's part of it is, you know, the market and the fund flows and where's the institutional money going. I certainly respect that. Um, the other piece of it as an investor, you know, so fundamentals is I'm looking at balance sheet right now because capital is going to be a lot harder to get this yes. year than it was last year. We had SPAC, Frenzy, you know, everybody was raising money. It was so cheap, you know, and everybody that had any any business concept could raise a ton of money last year. Yeah. And now interest rates are getting more expensive and the stocks are a lot lower. It's, it's harder to put capital on your balance sheet. That's a huge advantage if you're a leader in a big market that's capital intensive. Right. Well, that kind of leads us to our next segment. So we'll take a break real quick. And when we come back, we'll talk about in this higher rate environment and uh, with a lot of these capital intensive industries, uh, what opportunities are out there now. So make sure you stay tuned for that. We'll be right back. The Direction Hydrogen ETF offers exposure to the top 30 pure play hydrogen economy companies by largest market capitalization, leading the way towards net zero emissions by providing more accessible, efficient, sustainable solutions across five hydrogen related subthemes. With clean hydrogen based energy expected to grow five times in the next 30 years, companies building hydrogen related businesses to generate power, heating, transportation, and more will likely thrive. Welcome back to Investing with IBD, sponsored by Direction. It's Justin Nielsen here, along with Arusha Pires, and our guest this week is Simon Erickson from Seven Investing. So, uh, you kind of set it up pretty nicely here, Simon. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this, the, the capital intensiveness uh, that is going on with some of these companies, and how a rate, a rate hikes affect that. So, go ahead, take it away. Yeah, well, I mean, shoot, we, we've talked a lot with, we've heard a lot from Jerome Powell, right? You know, the Fed and yeah. moving up interest rates and trying to slow down the economy. You know, it's kind of hard to get by when you've got 8% inflation out there. You know, if you only got a 7% raise last year, you're losing purchasing power. Right. And the Fed's saying, hey, we've got to get this under control of the economy. And so they're going to be more aggressive in raising interest rates very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And this is something that's happened only in the last six months or so, Justin. And, it, and because of the aggressiveness of the Fed, we saw a yield curve inversion on the 1st of April, no fooling, no joking on this. It really happened. <laughs> uh, we're right around 2.6%. The inversion is where the two-year treasury is actually paying a higher rate than the 10-year treasury note is. Very rare. It's only happened four times in the last 35 years. Uh, but when you go back in, in time and you kind of look at those, you, there's implications for what this could mean for the American economy. And uh, actually, in, in all four of those instances, it predicted a recession in the United States. A recession being where uh, there are two quarterly negative GT GDP cycles of America in a row consecutively, right? And so a lot of people are kind of wondering, you know, what is this going to mean? Is this is this really bad for stocks? You know, we've got a recession coming up. You've got the yield curve inversion. Inflation's out of control right now. And so we went back and we did some empirical uh, 
uh, we looked at some empirical evidence on what it typically means for stocks for each of those those yield curve inversions. And typically from the moment of the inversion to the peak of the recession, the worst of the worst for the American economy was typically 17 months, right? about a mm -hmm. year and a half it, it yeah. took actually to, to reach the bottom. And interestingly, the, the average return of the S&P 500, again, the largest companies in the stock market here, the average return for those was 28.8% over that following year and a half. And you might say to yourself, hey, this is completely counterintuitive, Simon. How can you have the, the recession and the economy going into the, the, uh, the toilet at the same time that you've got stocks doing so well? And that's because of like we were just chatting about in the previous segment. This has been factored in. This is not just, you know, hidden knowledge. Uh, there are indicators out there that institutional money is flighting to safety. Valuations are much, much lower. And as, uh, even as things are getting worse for the economy, the stock market adjusts to that as well. And it's all an expectations game. Eventually, there's going to be money that goes back into the NASDAQ, into tech stocks again. And that's why you're going to see, that it, counterintuitively, it's a great time to be investing in stocks right now. No, yeah, it, it's funny, Simon, because you know, that, that is something we always talk about here. The, the market is always going to do the opposite of what you think and feel. And mm -hmm. so if, you're, if you don't have that kind of strategy where you're going to use technicals and, and charts and price and volume action to help kind of put it... Uh, to look for the health of the stocks when they're acting uh, healthy or not. This is why most people say, don't be, you know, don't try to time the markets because if once you start noticing the things, the market's already looking six to nine months out right. and it's already, it's already taken that into account. And now it's looking further after the recessions actually happened that we're on our way to recovery. So I think, I, I, I think first, a la last segment with your optimism there, you know, ignoring Justin, obviously, but <laughs> that optimism, that's going to carry you through those seven, those tough 17 months uh, of a recession and the stocks reacting to that. And now you're going to get back to that growth. So you put it really well there where you, the market's always going to kind of look out forward. It's always going to do the opposite. Uh, and so you have to have that strategy and really, I think, come up with a strategy that fits your personality. Yeah, and look look where everyone else is not looking, right? Look at look at the beat up yes. stocks that have been whacked, rather than you know the the, the super sexy you know in the headline of every uh, financial media outlet out there. I mean, it, this is the time to go shopping for bargains. Yep, uh, it, it's it's counterintuitive. You you get a a cheerier consensus, you know, when everything feels good and it's going up, like it was a year ago when we were looking at first quarter of 2021. But actually, that was a that was a very challenging time to be buying into the stock market. It's much more attractive for investors for long term right now. Well, and maybe let's talk a little bit about what is attractive, because uh, certainly I don't think necessarily everything is created equal here. Uh, this is my Debbie Downer coming out again. Um, I mean, there's there's some of these stocks that have been so beaten up. And, you know, as you brought up Peloton. Yeah, maybe the thesis was was off on that. You know, so uh, how do you distinguish between, OK, here's something that was beaten up and for good reason versus here's something where, oh, maybe it's overdone. And the valuation is is so attractive now that this is something that you can really get some some appreciation out of. Quarter after quarter after quarter, Justin, we, we've seen cloud spending increase, right? The mm -hmm. big cloud providers, whether it's Microsoft, whether it's Google, whether it's Amazon, even Oracle, uh, there is a clear shift that's underway, even in the middle of COVID pandemic, even in the middle of market volatility, we've seen these last couple of quarters. It doesn't matter what's going on in the bigger economy. Uh, if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're dependent on shipping things around the world and you're, you're concerned about energy prices, yes, certainly inflation definitely matters for something like that. Mm -hmm. If you're building a tech stack for a cloud computing data center, that might not be as important as the supply chain constraints of the semiconductor industry are. And so one fertile ground that, that I'm going shopping in right now is, is semiconductors, the chip industry. There is a just a, a, a continual demand for chips. We know this. We know that there's chips in everything now. It's, it's in your right. laundry machines and your refrigerators and toasters and everything else out there. But because of that, and because of also the supply challenges, the zero COVID regulations that are in China right now, um, a zillion other things that are going on in the automotive industry and everything else, there is a there is a shortage of supply to meet the demand for chips. And the end markets are even more interesting because smartphones are very kind of growing very slowly right now. You know, globally smartphone growth, uh, maybe maybe single digits percentage. You know, when you look at the consolidated. Uh, but when you look at high performance computing, you know, what's going to data centers, what's serving those AI workloads that are incredibly computationally intensive. 
that's something that's still growing 30, 40, 50%, depending on who you're looking at. Uh, automotive, electric vehicles, a lot of uh, chips in those, you know, uh, we've certainly seen that from Tesla and others. There's long-term demand for that. And of course, we always talk about the internet of things, you know, especially for enterprises who want to be sensing everything and making uh, a way to monitor uh, more efficiently. That's still just getting started. And so if you are providing semiconductor chips right now, um, this is the, the perfect storm of, of opportunity for you. Yeah. And, and so we, and and that story has been there and it continues to grow and clearly one of the the great growth trends uh, out there um but how do you put that into kind of taking advantage of the strategy are you slowly dollar co cost averaging or slowly maybe every few months buying a little bit more and and or during these kind of 17 months where the where the market are correcting or at least going sideways or or, or how else are you uh going to try to really put that money to work in these super growth trends that they just, the timing just might be off and they may be out for another year or so. Yeah. And again, Arusha, I think the market's going to do what the market's going to do, right? Exactly. It's going to be, right there's going to be sometimes you'll buy it and you don't get the perfect valuation. It drops. If you still like the company and nothing's changed, you're getting a better deal on the same stock you didn't from the last time. Um, I don't have back the truck up moments where I just, you know, go all in and I say, okay, I'm going to forget about it for 10 years. Yeah. I tend to like to buy in smaller quantities at first, Gets me watching the stock. I add to it over time. No, oh, makes sense. Mm -hmm. And are there any other industries? So, and and we're going to get more into the semiconductors and some individual names. But are there any other industries that you think are are setting up right now? Again, having that kind of value side of things um, that look like bargains as opposed to broken. The uh, the real interesting one for me is the space economy, which is mm -hmm. becoming commercialized. You probably heard the commercial space economy. It's catching some attention out there these days, but it was almost impossible to launch a satellite if you were a small company in the, in the past. You either had to be NASA and you know this wow. giant government funded program that's spending billions of dollars, uh, or if you wanted to ride share with Elon, uh, he'd let you on the Falcon rockets if, if you were going to the same orbital plane that he was and you, know, you paid him a lot of money for that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're out of luck. You gotta wait until the stars align, the bus is gonna drop you off in the right place, so to speak, in orbit of where mm -hmm. somebody else wanted to go. Uh, this is a very capital intensive industry. It's very, very hard to launch satellites into space for yourself. Uh, and it's just wasn't economical to do it for other people now. But now commercial space economy made possible by billionaire entrepreneurs who have a fascination with doing things in outer space is unlocking some creativity of entrepreneurs that might want to do th something out in orbit that is now commercially and economically available for them. Uh, one opportunity for this, you know, we were talking about sensing things. We we're talking about the Internet of Things as one opportunity. Um, oil wells, oil wells and uh, energy companies like to know kind of where the level of water is, you know, and things like this. Surveyors, you know, any logistics companies, they want to sense things that might be hard to see if you're just kind of at the same level uh, as everyone else. If you're looking at things from a satellite, that's much easier. Uh, logistics wants to know weather patterns, want to know what's going on. How can you most efficiently ship things around the world? That's certainly interesting. Satellite Internet which is going to require entire constellations of satellites uh, is a huge opportunity too, because you can kind of pay that off as you go. Um, a lot of opportunities that are kind of uh, taking off, taking into orbit, launching, you know, what's the right pun I can use for that one? Well, gosh, I mean, you got three. I mean, how many more do you have? So what about like, and, and this could probably lead into the third segment here, but what about like a kind of a turnaround companies? where it, they're classic companies and and we can use intel as, as the example here where been around for a long time and every company and you mentioned microsoft earlier they go through these ruts where they're they're great companies but they've kind of gotten out of touch and now it's up to them to catch up reinvent themselves maybe bring in new leadership how do you approach those do you use maybe a catalyst uh, as a such as a new ceo coming in there to kind of change the culture and change the direction of the company as a, a reason to get into may, uh, as opposed to maybe before that when they got stagnant now all of a sudden their numbers were starting to slow down maybe their balance sheet looks good but their numbers and kind of they're missing out on kind of that next trend yeah so so we are all downstream of, of leadership decisions arusha yeah. I, I tend to think of it as, as you are you are following a vehicle and how is the driver in front of you driving that vehicle um, that driver is the CEO of the company, and the exhaust is the financial statements of, of how it's being managed, right? And so if you've got somebody that's making all the wrong decisions, there's this giant plume of smoke that hits you in the face because the car's about to blow up. 
um, versus someone who's cruising, you know, at the fastest speed in the in the passing lane of the highway. And and so it, it kind of all we always think about that, you know, why is a company stock price go up? Well, it's typically because they're doing well, they're reporting good earnings or they're reporting good fundamentals. Um, but that is a result of the financial statements as a whole, a result of decisions being made. Um, it's downstream of R&D. It's downstream of operational decisions that are being made. And it kind of all starts at the top of, of what is the leadership team doing? Intel is a fascinating example because Intel kind of created, at least to a large degree, this semiconductor industry. If you go back 70 years, you know, in Moore's Law, Gordon Moore, the, you know, the founder of Intel, kind of found out that you can have more densely packed transistors onto chips that are doing more and more cool things and more operations and unlocking all this stuff that we take for granted today. But it was Intel, you know, that was willing to put the capital into that in the manufacturing of those chips that, that kind of started th th this whole industry. But Intel also, um, for better or for worse, wanted control of the entire ecosystem. They, they had their own fabs. You know, they wanted to do everything themselves for their own manufacturing. And if you kind of go back maybe five or 10 years, that cost them um, their own control over the entire process and their entire uh, manufacturing left them vulnerable for others that might be able to perfect one part of the semiconductor manufacturing process much more efficiently than Intel wanted to do this. And so the case in point is a Dutch-based company called ASML, public traded. They're huge right now. They're the leader in, uh, in lithography, uh, specifically ultraviolet light lithography. And then five years ago, 2017, they unveiled this awesome new project they've been working on for years called Extreme Ultraviolet Lithography, EUV. And uh, they, they announced it. And, you know, they said, hey, we're going, to, we're going to make this available for anybody who wants to have a fab that manufactures semiconductors. Taiwan Semiconductor jumped all over this. A lot of uh, benefits for that company of embracing the latest and greatest R&D. And Intel did not. Intel wanted to work with multi-patterning. They worked with Nikon. They had their existing suppliers. They didn't want to pay $150 million for the ASML machines. They said, no, 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 we're going we're to do this on our own. We've already kind of got our set way of doing things with our own fabs that we own. And it cost them. You know, if you look at Intel today, uh, who's not able to make chips of less than seven nanometer nodes, process technologies, whereas Taiwan Semi and Samsung just keep getting better and more and more efficient. Um, when you're talking about things like high performance computing or who's going to get the, you know, the Apple contract or, you know, who's going to work with Qualcomm to manufacture these cutting edge chips that are either going into smart devices or Internet of Things or Amazon's data centers, uh, you, you have to work with, with, with Taiwan Semi. Basically, if you want to, Apple could work with Samsung, the largest competitor to manufacture if they wanted, or or they could right. work with Taiwan Semi. Right. And so this is in the state of of semis where it is today is you've got an independent foundry with Taiwan Semiconductor um, that has taken share for these last five years because of a technology and a management decision. Mm -hmm. But Intel's also brought back in a very very smart leader. Their their CEO is Pat Gelsinger. He goes back with Gordon Moore, you know, back to the earliest days of Intel. Um, and he has recognized a lot of the missteps that they had. And to me, that's very interesting to have a leader that's, that's willing to say, hey, we gotta, we got to shift the, the course of this ship here, guys. Uh, they're already placing orders with, with Taiwan Simi for the, the latest and greatest um, chips that they're going to manufacture. They're actually embracing the high aperture uh, ASML lithography machines that are due out next year. Intel is, is correcting a lot of its mistakes. And I think that a lot of its valuation is based on Intel's mistakes of a couple of years ago rather than how the car is being driven in the fast lane of the next five years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, so I mean, and your your description right there of how you see a leader that had a stranglehold on the industry lose its, lose its footing, lose its yeah. direction, and allow all these competitors come in and take away a lot of that business. I mean, that was just classic. I mean, you see that in every industry. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I mean, well done. I mean, that... that that was just a perfect example of how capitalism works. And all of a sudden, if people aren't, they have too much control, uh, you can have let other competitors get in there when if they're not kind of improving every step of the process. Right. Adapt or die. Well, when we come back, we're going to get in a little bit more into the ramifications of some of these changes that are going on in the semiconductor industry, especially in this new environment. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. The Direction Hydrogen ETF offers exposure to the top 30 pure play hydrogen economy companies by largest market capitalization, leading the way towards net zero emissions by providing more accessible, efficient, sustainable solutions across five hydrogen related sub themes. With clean hydrogen based energy expected to grow five times in the next 30 years, 
companies building hydrogen-related businesses to generate power, heating, transportation, and more will likely thrive. Welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Direction. It's Justin Nielsen here along with Arusha Pires and our guest from 7investing, the founder and CEO, it's Simon Erickson. Okay, Simon, so we were talking, uh, getting a little bit deep into the semiconductors. Let's talk about some of the individual companies a little bit more. Um, you were you were talking about ASML, and ASML was certainly one that we had on our radar. This was kind of an easy hold uh, for, for a lot of 2020 and 2021. It just never really breached the 21 day. And certainly that product that you mentioned, it was almost like a monopoly they had. You know, if you wanted that technology, they were kind of the one-stop shop to get it. So what else can you tell us about ASML and, and the move that it's had and what the future holds for it? Yeah, well, Justin, the, the takeaway here is that monopolies are good if you're a <laughs> stock market investor, right? If you can invest in something that nobody else can do out there, then that is a great investment for a long-term investor. Uh, ASML is that kind of company, right? They're, they're making, like we were just mentioning, the extreme ultraviolet machines uh, that's used for lithography. That's an important component in the semiconductor manufacturing process. And these machines are very expensive. They cost $150 million a piece. They take a long time to build. They only ship a couple of them every single year, but you're shipping them to the largest fabs that are out there in the world. Taiwan Simi's buying them. Samsung's buying them. Intel's realized it needs to start buying more of them. Uh, but they're very expensive machines. And, and of course, a new fab can, can cost several billions of dollars. Uh, and so this is kind of a long-term play that, you know, when you see a huge trend, like there's more chips that need to be produced, there's more cutting edge chips that need to be produced to keep up with these things like AI and the workloads that are, that are related to them. Uh, there's going to be a lot more computation five and 10 years in the future than there is today. And ASML is in the perfect monopolistic position to benefit from it. And so what do you what do you have when you, when you get to have a monopoly? You get to keep raising prices. You get to have more and more greater operating efficiencies. You've got patents that protect your products from others doing the same thing. And you've got a captive customer base that's willing to pay top dollar because it needs what you're producing. And so ASML has, has done all of those, steadily growing revenue, steadily increasing margins, uh, rewarding its, its investors and its shareholders through a dividend that it increased 100% year over year and steadily repurchasing shares. This is kind of the ultimate situation for a long-term investor. Um, I, I'm really a big fan of this company. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's more than a moat. Uh, you know, when the, people talk about the moat being around where it's tough for competitors to get in there, but I mean, this is almost like on an island. Um, but let's, let's talk about this last quarter. You know, there, we got some red numbers in terms of growth there. Um, is that something where that bothers you at all? Uh, you know, the single digit, uh, estimates for this year in terms of the annual numbers. Um, but next next year is looking much better. Uh, do you let one quarter bother you or is that something that you can kind of explain away? No, I'm not worried about that. When you when you see its largest customers, Taiwan Simi, it's got a $44 billion with a B capital expenditures budget for this year. And it's going to be even higher than that, even maybe the next year too. I mean, you're investing ahead of the cost curve when you do something like that, right? You're not going to have those fabs at 100% capacity right out of the gate, but you're going to get there and they're going to continue building them. There's also a geopolitical angle to this, Justin, which is that Taiwan Semiconductor, as you might have inferred, is based in Taiwan, uh, which has got a lot of risks with, with its relationship with China right now, right? You know, there's a lot of chatter about is China going to try to re-annex or annex Taiwan and reunify it with the mainland. Uh, Taiwan Semi is, is for years uh, used that as a strategic advantage to get protection from democratic allies in the West, but now it's actually wanting to uh, diversify its own assets. It's building a fab in Japan. It's building one out in Arizona in the United States. It's going to be building one very soon here in Europe as um, governments are now supporting domestic supply of chip making. Just in case something really, really bad happens, they want to be able to make sure they're getting secure supply for the most important chips. And so yeah. uh, I guess the, the, the answer that I would say is I'm not, I'm not really concerned about ASML here in the short term. I think there's plenty of demand tied right, right to those CapEx budgets from the largest uh, customers that they have in the world. Yeah. And so my question with the ASML is that how much could potentially be baked in because it's gone on such a big run, right? And and rightfully so with, with the stranglehold that they've had on it. Uh, does that run kind of continue? Do newer buyers come into this or it, does, does the growth rates increase? Because uh, it went from $100 up to $800 over the last seven, eight years? 
I, I personally think it's going to continue, Arusha. I, I think that the demand is certainly there, but they're very efficient in how they're using their money. Uh, one, one of my all-time favorite metrics to follow as, a, as an investor is return on invested capital. Mm -hmm. So the money that a company uh, is either borrowing uh, from debt or raising through equity, how is it using that in terms of churning out pre-tax profits, net operating profit after taxes? Uh, if, if you're borrowing money at, you know, call it six or seven or 10 percent, and you're getting a 15 percent return on that money, uh, then you're you're creating incremental value for your shareholders. You are creating projects that are that are more um, uh, profitable than the money that you have to borrow to get there. And ASML uh, has got a return on invested capital of something like 40 percent right now. It's wow. ridiculously wow. high. It's, it's several times uh, greater than the, the borrowing costs that it has. And its borrowing costs are very, very low because it's got such a strong balance sheet. But when you see something like that in the dynamic where you're getting, you know, th maybe 30 percentage points delta between the profits it's producing versus what it's it's borrowing at, uh, that's a really good sign for a long-term investor. It's using its money well. It, it's not just, you know, a flash in the pan. This is something that's, that's here to stay for a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. So um, do you want to talk a little bit more maybe about uh, Taiwan Semiconductor? You, you've, you've kind of touched on that a little bit, but maybe we just show the chart real quick because uh, certainly this is one that's, um, you know, come, come off as many of the tech companies have, um, but really no blemishes on its, its fundamental record. You can see that the earnings record still double digits that it's maintained over the last uh, at least eight quarters that we're seeing here. Um, estimates for this year, 37%. Uh, next year, a little bit lighter at, at 10%. But uh, anything on the fundamental side for this one, uh, you already mentioned the, the kind of diversification geographically that is going under, but anything uh, worth noting on the fundamental side for this one? I mean, amazing, right? 37% growth for a company of this size. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. A couple 37% growth with the fact that it's got 52% market share of, of the manufacturing of chips that people are doing externally. And if you, if you take out, you know, the Intel's are making some of their own chips, Samsung's making, if you are, if you are manufacturing chips for others, Taiwan Semiconductor has more than half of the world's global foundry capacity and it's growing at 37%. Mm -hmm. um, Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Uh, the competitive advantage that this company enjoys, we we're chatting in the previous segment about competitive advantages, is, is how densely can you pack in uh, those logic nodes that are going to the transistors that are going to the semiconductor chips. It's very, very, very hard to do this. If you've heard Moore's law is dead or Moore's law is dying, it, it's not. It's just getting really, really hard to do it economically. Mm -hmm. And so there's only, only two companies in the world right now, Taiwan Semi and Samsung, who are able to make chips of less than seven nanometer node process technologies. And by the way, Samsung's falling a little bit behind because one of its vice presidents that was in charge of this just did some hard time for bribery and embezzlement, oh, uh, which is certainly not good when you've got your leadership team that it's, you know, we won't go into that. That's a separate, separate conversation. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's that car analogy. That's the misfire that you're hearing. But this is something that it's, you know, again, a monopoly, ASML is a, is a monopoly. Again, to set the table a little bit, ASML is selling its uh, lithography machines to Taiwan Semiconductor. Taiwan Semiconductor's customers are people that want to make chips. Companies like AMD, like NVIDIA, like Qualcomm, uh, they do all of the manufacturing. So those companies can just focus on the design. Mm -hmm. And if you're working with a company to manufacture the chips that you depend on for your entire business, you're going to work with the, the leader. You're going to work with the market leader that has 52% market share and can make them more efficiently and more more cheaply than anyone else can out there. Great long-term competitive advantages. I think they're getting even stronger over time. So now with their with their strategy to uh, spread out r around the globe, I mean, I think they're building a, a plant in Arizona too. Uh, but uh, now, does that does that potentially accelerate their growth even more? I mean, this uh, as as you mentioned, this co this company is already huge, but having it in a number of different places around the globe, not only does it protect them from the potential, what, what China could do, but does that potentially help them where say they're in Arizona, the supply chains, maybe the growth, mm -hmm. maybe they can kind of turn around and deliver their chips even faster. Yes, absolutely. Um, so first of all, Arusha, I know that you are a biology major uh, from back in the days, right? Long, so, long, so, so long time. The, the, the analogy here is genomic sequencing, right? Like yes. you and I have chatted about Illumina before. You had yes. to get the cost of sequencing the genome down to $1,000 or less than $1,000 for do doctors and you know hospitals to actually find a way to, to use this. 
to make it economical to, to actually, other than academic setting, how can you, how can you afford uh, when it was so expensive? This is exactly what Taiwan Simi did is they said, okay, we're going to do all the CapEx. We're going to plow money into R and D. We're going to work with the best partners in the world out there like ASML. And we're going to invest ahead of the cost curve so that we can make chips for you, Apple, for you, uh, AMD, for you, NVIDIA at the lowest possible price. And then you can sell those to the Amazons of the world who are using them for high performance computing. And so when you see $44 billion CapEx budget and you're moving it into the United States, that is, of to, to answer the question, that is the, the dream of a tech company that wants to make ASICs, wants to make their own chips. Tesla wants to make their own chips. Facebook wants to make their own chips. Now all the big tech companies are designing. Amazon's doing it for Inferencia that's going into the Alexa. Sorry for anybody if I just triggered that, you know, <laughs> uh, the word. But, you know, all of that is custom. They, they don't want to manufacture those things. They want to design them and then hand it off and then have a domestic supplier so you know you're going to get uh, the supply that you need for those products. And I think that the other the other piece of this is uh, certainly this is going to be a, a boon for Taiwan Simi's business. There's going to be orders that are going to fill up those fabs and, and increase the margins over time. But you've got to watch Intel, too who is just ready to go and go get an Apple contract or, you know, go get one of those uh, Silicon Valley companies and say, Hey, you know, we're here right here. You know, we're opening up our foundry business. They're doing about a a billion dollars a year in uh, in run rate for for revenues for it right now. You have to respect that you've got a smart CEO that's going after where the money is. And there's a lot of geopolitical um, risks with, with doing business with Taiwan Simi. I think both of them are very interesting. There is certainly a lot of demand, and this is a very attractive industry to be a part of. Yeah, I almost wonder if it's going to be something like when when Microsoft, you know, started taking uh, some of the contracts from Amazon in terms of the the cloud computing. It was like, oh, hey, wait a minute, they're they're really becoming a contender here. Um, you know, in, Intel has that shot to, I guess, reinvent itself in that way. Yeah, and and Intel. I mean, back to the, the points we were making earlier, Justin. They've lost a lot of share too, right? Like they they lost a lot of CPU share and, and notebook computers and uh, laptops and things like this. Co- companies like AMD that benefited from that relationship, yeah. but that, they, they won those contracts. They got a lot of share from that too. So it's kind of a give and take. There's opportunities for Intel. It's also a lot of kind of dead weight they got to get past as well. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we shift over to AMD because you've been talking a lot about these, uh, you know, the fabulous, the designers, the ones that aren't uh, doing the manufacturing. So uh, maybe talk a little bit about AMD and what what's in store for the design of chips. Yeah. So let's go back in time eight years, right? 2014, AMD is saddled up with debt. It's hardly making any money. Its stock price was something like $5 a share. Wow. It was basically a, a second fiddle to Intel and selling CPUs for notebook computers and it never could catch up with NVIDIA in getting uh, getting into the data center. It was always just like everybody else. And then AMD had the silver medal uh, in every 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 industry that it was participating in. Mm-hmm. And 2014, uh, a woman named Lisa Su uh, actually takes the helm. She becomes the CEO of, of AMD. And she says, we've got to completely redesign our chips. We, we cannot always be second place. We've got to go out and fundamentally do things differently. And to her credit, that's exactly what, what AMD did. And it went out there and it won those contracts. It had Epic line, uh, Epic processors were the GPUs that it was selling and, and the GPUs and the CPUs that it was both selling to the data center. High performance computing took off. Uh, AMD has been acquiring companies uh, to build out its IP uh, that it has. Uh, acquired a company called Xilinx, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. doing uh, FPGAs, field programmable gate arrays, which is basically a completely customizable chip. Right. So Arusha wants to go out there and he wants to start mining Bitcoin. He's got a more efficient way to do it than anybody else out there. You can use Xilinx's ecosystem to do that as efficiently as possible and train the chips to do those things. That's what an FPGA does. And then, by the way, Arusha, six months later, he's going to figure out a better way to do it more efficiently. And then he can change it again. It's a completely programmable chip. Um, That is really interesting as, as the cloud is taking off, as 5G is taking off as machine learning inference is taking off, all of these things that are gonna require a whole bunch of engineering tweaks because you wanna do it a little bit better and a little bit better. Uh, bespoke applications like those are, are now uh, on the buffet that, that AMD can offer to any customer out there. And you don't want you to work with, with 20 chip makers, you wanna work with a, a handful that mm-hmm. have got the most, um, the, the best IP library of what to pick from when you're designing chips. A- AMD is definitely one of them. It's not a second fiddle anymore. This is a, this is a leader in the data center. Now, Simon, I mean, that was a pretty quick turnaround when she came in 
in 2014 to it, the stock market recognizing that AMD was truly changing in tw end of 2015, early 2016. Um, wh what, how did she turn it around so fast? I mean, AMD has been around for a long time. It takes, it takes quite a while to change the culture. It is very, very challenging. There's no doubt about it. I mean, we were just talking about Netflix earlier in the show. It's like, you know, disrupting your own business. Right. Yeah. You've got to change where the resources are going. You know, you're going to have some employees saying, why, why, what, no, I want to do this. You guys used to fund me to do this. Now we're, do, we're shifting directions. Yeah. I mean, it's always easier said than done. But um, when you do kind of listen to, to what the market is telling you, and you see the opportunities and you kind of see there's less competition in the data center than there is if we just want to fight it out for laptops. Um, that, that's a that's a big decision to make that is the yeah. correct decision. And so you've got a, a market focused CEO like Elisa Su, also uh, Jensen Wong at NVIDIA, which, by the way, the two of them are related. Um, fun known wow. fact, uh, wow. that the CEO of NVIDIA is related to the CEO of AMD. Wow. Uh, I'll have to look up, you know, the second removed cousins or whatever it is. But uh, both of them, both of them said, you know, we don't want to be doing the manufacturing. We want to be doing the design, and we want to go after the highest price chips we can sell, and, and that's what they did. Wow, this has been a great conversation, Simon. I really appreciate you coming on. Now, uh, for some of our audience that maybe wants to kind of follow your analysis, uh, what's what's the best way for people to do that? Sure. Yeah. So, it, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on the show and to chat about Seven Investing. Our website is seveninvesting.com. Uh, every month, we have a team of seven advisors that are coming up with seven stock picks that we are actually publishing to the site. And we offer it for $399 a year. Uh, you can come in and not only see our recommendation reports, but something else that's kind of fun is interact directly with our team. Ask our advisors why they like the companies that we pick mm -hmm. each and every month. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what our business is, a subscription, 7investing.com. Very good. Well, again, we appreciate you sharing as many of your insights as you did today uh, and analogies as well. I'm sure we'll have to have you on again to get more into the, the space space area that you were talking about. So that, that'll be a little bit of a teaser for next time. Or if there's another industry, we'll see what the cards hold. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll have something all brand new for you to talk about. But thanks so much for coming. Thanks very much for having me, Justin. I'll also include IBD as a promo code for anyone else to sign up. $100 off the annual order for anyone who's interested Perfect. in this. Oh, awesome. Very good. Well, thank you for doing that for our listeners. Okay, and on our show next week, we're going to welcome back Vernon Bice from Lord Abbott. He's a portfolio manager there, so that'll be great talking to him and getting his take on how things stand in the market and any industry groups that are on his radar. So thank you very much for joining us this week, and we hope to see you again next week. Thanks for watching. Bye-bye now. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.